So today we are discussing this idea of a garden in the wilderness. We had just heard Isaiah 35, the great prophet Isaiah, giving a wonderful message of redemption after the people of Israel have gone away into exile. Um, if you're not familiar with the book of Isaiah, if you've never uh, read much about it, it's it's pretty big. It's you know it's a big book and and it's hard to summarize in in a short number of sentences, but basically the king of Assyria comes and, um, well, Isaiah prophesies before these things happen, but Isaiah prophesies that Israel, because of her idolatry, which we covered two weeks ago, um, talking about the the bride of Yahweh, the bride of Christ in the New Testament, uh, being the people of God and their adultery and going after idols. And so Isaiah is in the context of speaking about this idolatry that God's people had entered into. They had completely gone away from all sorts of worship of Yahweh and had begun to worship other foreign gods. And so it is in this context that Isaiah is prophesying and what, what we read today in Isaiah 35 is, a, is what is known as uh, an oracle of salvation or a prophecy concerning redemption, and it follows a few different patterns, one of which is, is the, uh, the idea of God, what God is about to do, his actual salvation, the uh, remembrance of God's work in the past, the command to the people of God to fear not, and then finally, an exploration of what is the outcome of God's salvation. As in after God's salvation comes, there's an overflow, there's a change in the atmosphere, in the land, and that is the, uh, the outgrowth. That's really the point of this oracle of salvation. It's not, it's not just that God's going to save in a moment and rescue his people, but that that salvation will continue to have uh, you know, redounding uh, effects. Uh, if you remember the the great hymn, the the great wonderful Christmas hymn, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, and then you say that like eighteen times, and then you know. But the idea is, in those Christmas hymns, the idea is that our continual celebration of what God has done in the past, with an eye toward the future. Uh, doesn't reenact in that, you know, it happens again in a time-space way, but it reinvigorates the message to have in, continue, uh, continuing effect today. That's why we take the Lord's Supper week by week. We don't crucify Christ in the Lord's Supper. That is not at all what 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 takes place at, at the Lord's Supper, but we again enter into that initial uh, supper that, that Christ had established. So that's the pattern of Scripture, uh, readings, that's the pattern of, of biblical interpretation of salvific prophecy. And so that is what we are to celebrate uh, this, this week. Um, last week, if you remember, I was asked what the pink candle is, is about. And the pink candle, uh, which we'll be lighting today, is actually, it's not actually that significant. Um, it, it does have meaning, uh, but what it really means is uh, mostly about this particular Sunday in Advent is a time of celebration. And so the Advent particularly is uh, a time of reflection, of sober-mindedness, of examining our own sins in the light of a holy God. And this particular Sunday, in the midst of these four weeks, is one in which we have a little bit more celebration. If you noticed the songs this week were, we didn't sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, we sang about our gods breaking in with miraculous power. And that's what we're talking about today. 
So God is going to make a garden in the wilderness, and um, we're going to look at these elements. First, I'm going to talk just a little bit about prophetic language and how it's used in the scripture, because it it's very uh, possible that we will miss some things that God's trying to say to us if we don't know the way in which he speaks. Then we're going to get into the story, and we're going to cover this idea that the land itself was dead. Uh, it wasn't just the people of, of Israel who had who had been corrupted and become fruitless. The land itself was was a dry place. Uh, God comes in and, and breaks breaks into the situation with redemption, and then we're going to look at what that redemption actually uh, was. That is this miraculous salvation, this salvation that accomp- is accompanied by signs and wonders and miracles. Out of that flow streams of life, and we're going to see how that uh, really these two ideas, God's miraculous salvation or the salvation that's accompanied by miracles and this imagery of streams coming out in the wilderness, reinvigorates God's covenant and reestablishes God's covenant with his new people. And then finally, we're going to look at this pointer forward. This is where we come back to our Advent celebration, that this way of holiness that is spoken of and promised by Isaiah, we are now entering into, but not yet fully. And so um, that's what we'll talk about today. So many times in, in Scripture, there's some difficulty in interpreting. How many of you have ever been confused by a passage? Yeah, one of my favorite ones, especially the, the most common question I get from new believers who, who if, they're, if they're doing uh, a New Testament first approach, which I don't recommend, uh, it, as a new believer, if they're just jumping into the New Testament, they get to 1 John and they ask me, what are the sins that uh, are, are leading unto death? And, and it's just, it's amazing because every single new believer that I've been involved with uh, discipling has, has asked me that question. And so it's, sometimes the scriptures speak in a way which we are not uh, familiar with. And so it's hard to understand sometimes the things that are in the Bible. And and that's why uh, we as Christians, although we're Protestants and we believe in the doctrine of sola scriptura, which just means uh, that the Bible contains the things which are necessary for salvation or to, to know how God wants us to live. It doesn't mean that your interpretation of Scripture is right. And that is the deep error that we find ourselves in often. Uh, so, not only is Scripture difficult, but we also are very ignorant uh, oftentimes of what the church people, you know, different pastors, apostles in the church have said about particular passages over and over again. I advocate uh, primary reading of Scripture, that is reading Scripture before you're reading, you know, just taking time in your study Bible. But then after you read, it is good to go and, and ask, what did Matthew Henry, what did John Gill, what did, you know, what did Luther say about this passage? What, what, what did the early, earlier church fathers or, you know, middle, middle church fathers like Augustine, what did they say about these passages? And check your understanding with what the church has, has taught. Now, that doesn't mean that the church always gets things right, so there's a little bit of balance. But by and large, uh, you know, there are difficult things in the scriptures, compounded with the fact that the scriptures themselves contain beautiful and complex language, like, you know, the imagine the most complex and beautiful, um, you know, art or, or music that you've ever heard. It requires listening to or viewing multiple times in order to appreciate the different aspects of its beauty. 
And so likewise, the scripture contains these difficulties, but not only that, we also are in a spiritual condition where we often are hard of heart and we can't hear God's voice. And so seeing the things in the, that are plainly in scripture is difficult for us, maybe, maybe even impossible, especially without the aid of the Holy Spirit. And so this is where when we come to a new section of the scriptures or a new genre of the scriptures, we need to ask the Lord to help us even more. For us, mostly, the New Testament is where we're familiar and at home. And so when we, when we read from and, and learn from the Old Covenant scriptures, it sometimes takes time uh, to become familiar with the way they speak. So uh, one of the things that this prophetic language, we've been reading in Isaiah this whole Advent, and next week, I promise you, we'll be in Isaiah again. Uh, the, the idea that this prophetic language takes on its own particular way of speaking, uh, that, that idea is necessary for us to truly understand what, what he's saying. And so the prophetic writings rely on this technique called theme and variation. Uh, theme and variation is a, is a phrase you may have heard if you've ever done any sort of study of like music appreciation. For example, uh, Beethoven, uh, is it his fifth or ninth? His fifth. Everybody knows it. Dun, 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 dun. That, that theme, which is probably more recognizable than all the different advertisements of Coke, Visa, and all, you know, all of the different ads that you've seen in your life, that theme of bum, 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 that, that theme is continually repeated over and over again in that symphony. And the different movements take that theme and extrapolate it, and there's variation on the notes. And, but, but the idea is that the, the music explores this idea. Beethoven wants to communicate this grandeur and, um, and, and prominence and, and pomp and circumstance, if you will. There's a, a terrible ominous sound when you come to that part of the symphony. And so, you know, when you think of all the music that it's influenced, you know, if you're more familiar, probably musically, we're more familiar with Star Wars and its themes than Beethoven. But if you notice in Star Wars, Star Wars is about theme and variation. And, and even the Emperor's March is inspired directly by Beethoven. And so, even Star Wars itself is a variation in interpreting the prior work. Okay, so that is about as much as I can say about music to talk about the prophetic language. Prophetic language is dominated by a technique called theme and variation. And so over and over again, the prophets speak about certain things and then break out. It's kind of like if you, uh, maybe you're familiar with statistical analysis or, or something about the stock market, people talk about patterns and then there's a breakout. Right? This is what it means in the prophetic language. There is, there is theme and variation. And so, also, there's patterns, outliers, and these outliers, they describe the sudden action of the divine, oftentimes. They talk about a breaking in of God into a particular moment. And this is what happens in this chapter. So, metaphor, word pictures, repetition, chiastic structure, or if you, if you remember the hamburger of literature, uh, these are the tools by which we can learn the language of the scriptures. And it is not against God's law or the way that his spirit works for us to engage our minds in an intellectual way to understand the spiritual meaning and the, you know, the true meaning of, of his word. So taking an academic approach to studying God's word is not, 
it, it's not inconsistent with the complexity of the books that we're, we're studying. And to, to borrow a phrase from N.T. Wright, the book of Isaiah demands to be read in this way. As in, you cannot even crack the code, so to speak, unless you begin to deal with these types of tools. This is the way by which we unlock the scriptures. Uh, Of course, being aided by the Holy Spirit, but not neglecting the deep, oftentimes uh, soul-repentant work of beginning to approach God's word afresh. So, at the same time, when we're learning these things, you have to be careful to tread lightly and build bit by bit. If you remember during my time uh, last year, or yeah, this, this last year in Christ in the Old Testament, that series was done uh, just with kind of like the most solid examples of Christ in the Old Te- Testament or the Old Covenant scriptures. And so, you know, we didn't go off into all the different uh, minutiae that you can get into. And so, that's all I'm saying is, is use caution when you're in these passages, just like you have to use caution when you're interpreting all of the scripture. But by and large, if you stick to these tools and you ask the Holy Spirit to help you, and you examine your interpretation in light of what the church has taught throughout the ages, you can be pretty sure that you're arriving at a good place. So that's what I hope to uh, do today and to, in at the same time, you know, help us to, to learn how to do. So this chapter, as we're going to see, and I'm again, this is my posit, and then we're going to see it all verified, is that this chapter foretells the glory of the salvation of the Lord, Jesus Christ himself, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the formation of his church. Now, like, like all Old Testament uh, prophecy, oftentimes prophecy has initial fulfillment or representative fulfillment, and then final fulfillment. And that is what we examine when we uh, read this passage. So let's get into the story. This is an amazing prophecy. The The wilderness is spoken of by Isaiah at first, and it's, it is a dry place and it is dead. What happens in a desert? Everything that was in that land, when, when desertification comes through and moves through a situation, it's like an army or a siege just coming by. You know, this is scorched earth, so to speak. The desert's a hot place or an extremely cold place in some circumstances where there's little moisture, there's little places to build foundations of buildings, and there's no place to raise crops. And so the desert or the wilderness is a dry place. And here Isaiah is speaking about the land And then he goes and says that it will be glad. Now, this is an amazing idea for us who are mostly materialistic thinkers. Isaiah says in this passage that the land will be glad. And so we know that God's created order takes on his uh, attributes in some way. God's order is capable, at least in a poetic way, if not in a true way, uh, of experiencing emotion. Isaiah 35, 1, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Now, if that doesn't strike you as a little bit odd, um, you know, I've never asked my parking lot or sidewalk, how you doing today? Uh, You know, you don't go to the forest and say, are you depressed? You know, the the idea here is that Isaiah is saying the, the salvation that God's about to bring about is going to have effect over all of the created order. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. 
It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see, the, the land itself has eyes. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So just as the heavens in Psalm, in the book of, uh, in the book of Psalms, Describe, you know, are described, which we sang this morning, the heavens are singing the glories of God. Just as the heavens do, so itself the land will worship Yahweh. This idea of the glory of Lebanon, it connotes an idea of the building of a new temple or a new tabernacle, the old cedars of Lebanon had, having been used for not only the foundation of the temple in Israel itself, but also the furnishings. If you remember, God told uh, Moses, when he was making the things of the tabernacle, and then later Solomon, they actually used the cedars of Lebanon. And so in this idea, the, the, the glory of Lebanon shall be placed into a dry and desert land. A land which was desolate and not able to produce is now going to be uh, a place for God's temple to be, to be put. Carmel and Sharon speak of farmlands and pasture lands, bringing out the idea of fruitfulness and shepherding. No longer will this place be a place that doesn't have any fruit. That is, Israel, year after year in her idolatry, was not able to bear fruit in keeping God's covenant. And so here Isaiah is prophesying that the, the covenant will actually be able to be upheld in this place. Isaiah connects the language of wilderness and desolation next to the, describe the moral condition of the people of God. This is what I'm uh, meaning when I'm saying theme and variation. Over and over again, the Old Covenant scriptures use the image of the land, the geographic area of Israel, and connect it to the state of the people. What does God say in his giving of the law through Moses? If you disobey the commandments, the land will spew you out. That, that idea in Revelation 2 is repeated. If you're not zealous and repent, I'll spew you out of my mouth. So this is God saying, I'm going to judge the people. So just as the land becomes productive, so also God strengthens the hand, hands of men which bring forth fruit out of the ground. It, they till the ground and, and work it. And so God's glory not only transforms the land, but also his people's hearts. In Isaiah 35, three through four, he's telling, Isaiah is telling the, the uh, shepherds of Israel to strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. And then here is that message of salvation, fear not. In the midst of their exile, their, their military destruction by the king of Assyria, God tells Israel not to fear for what? For uh, God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. This is the message to God's people in, Israel, in, in exile. They should not fear, but rather have faith and trust in God. This informs the way in which we live in a culture that is primarily pagan, and primarily turning away from the things of God and the things of his church. And, and this should inform our spiritual outlook on life. Fear not. <clears throat> God, God brings about a redemption, and Isaiah, he's giving a, uh, a message of future hope that will be revealed, but that hope breaks in now and casts out fear today. And so this is building and building. First, the land itself is going to rejoice and be glad. It itself will worship Yahweh, its creator. But the, not only that, the shepherds of Israel are told to strengthen those who are weak, who, who are not able to work, nor are able to stand in his holy place. 
and, and give them confidence to approach God and say, fear not, God will come in and save you, although you yourself are guilty for why you're in exile. This is when the prophecy takes on a new dimension. This idea that I had mentioned before of miraculous salvation. Up until these verses, God had already done exactly these things to the people of Israel in the past. And so the prophet here is saying, remember people of Israel, what God has done before. But this is where it takes on a remarkably different approach. Now, Isaiah is moving on from a time of remembering of God's faithfulness to see the unrolling or the repetitive effect of God's salvation. They had seen God act before, and they had been strengthened before against their enemies, but this is absolutely unprecedented. No one in Israel was able to understand what Isaiah was pointing at in, in terms of understanding it from their own previous experience. Isaiah 35, 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. If you remember last week, we talked about uh, in a different passage of Isaiah, the total redemption that God's salvation brings where the lion and the lamb are okay to lie down together and the sheep and the wolves uh, live together. And so this idea that, you know, the cow and the bear are going to cohabit, Tame animals and wild animals are now set at rest. Likewise, Isaiah uses the language of the, lap, uh, the lame man leaping like a deer. This not only talks about the original goodness of creation in God's order, but also restoration for those who were, were broken by sin. And so these things were literally fulfilled in the first coming of Christ among the people of Israel and then spiritually fulfilled through the through another dimension. So Jesus himself actually does these performative miracles that, that Isaiah is talking about. But these miracles demand to be interpreted both in a physical way, that is, Jesus literally fulfilled the, the prophecy that the blind eyes would be open and the deaf ears would hear. But not only that, the spiritual dimension has also come true as well. Those who in Israel and among the Gentiles were blind to see God's dealings Romans 1 says, Paul describes the people of the, the Gentiles who were not able to see the things plainly visible in the creation. And so Jesus and, and through his gospel, the church, bring about an opening of the blind eyes, not just in a physical way, but also in a spiritual way. Likewise, uh, the people of Israel who at this point when Christ arrives, they've become dull of hearing, and yet their ear is opened. If you uh, In Psalm 40, uh, David is talking about the fact that he was deaf to God's voice, but then it's, it uses the language of piercing an ear or digging out a well. That is, David is saying, I was hard of heart and I couldn't hear God, but God, you have made me your bondservant, the piercing of the ear, and you've dug out my ears like like a well is dug out and unstopped, and now I can hear God's voice again. Though Elijah had raised the widow's son and Elisha had also cleansed Naaman, nothing like that had ever happened in Israel, nor in the entire world. Jesus Christ's miracles by which he demonstrated his uh, son, his, his nature of uh, his relationship to the Father, he himself fulfilled this prophecy concerning him, and not only that, indicates that the rest of this prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled as well. The salvation which makes the desert land into a garden is none other than Christ himself. 
this exile that, that the Israelites find themselves in, they're, they're in the midst of the Assyrians, and God pulls them back, not only to the land in the first place, but also, as we mentioned again last week, he redeems them from all the surrounding nations around Israel. And so God is faithful to his people, but the way in which he does it is the miraculous work of Jesus Christ on the earth in his earthly ministry. And then the continuation of his gospel through the church aided by the Holy Spirit. And so this is what Isaiah is prophesying, nothing other than, than that. The streams of life which come through the great salvation of God recapitulate or, or summarize and reenact the, the old covenant miraculous saving power that God had wrought. What happened when God sent his people through the wilderness? Right? They had sinned, and so God says, okay, none of your generation shall enter the land. They had to walk around in the wilderness for an entire generation, 40 years. And what happened over and over again? God makes water come out of the desert, miraculously. Just as God brought his people out of Egypt and, and brought water uh, forth in the, in the desert, notably Exodus 17, Numbers 20, so also the Holy Spirit is given to the people of God. And in this way, Isaiah is using this covenant creative language, that is, God created covenant with Israel by saving her out of Egypt and taking her through the dry places and putting her into a land that was not a desert but fertile. And then Isaiah, or then Israel herself had adulterated the land. And in the book of Jeremiah, it's, you know, the prophet says, is there not a hill on which you haven't uh, prostituted your, uh, your, your idols? This land, which God had created as a garden for them, they had turned into a desert. And so Isaiah is prophesying yet again, just as before, God will bring his people through the desert and make it a place of of life. He'll make it a place where they are able to live. And so this is obviously speaking of nothing other than the Holy Spirit given after the miracles. So the, the pattern of interpretation here is that the eyes of the blind have been opened in a physical, real way, etc. And then four waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, now that's an interesting phrase, in the haunt of jackals. Jackals are dogs who, uh, over and over again in the Psalms and in the New Covenant, uh, indicate and, and represent people who are evil, but not just evil in a way that they are ignorant of God, but they attack those who are the true children of God. And, and so these people are living in places uh, and when they go through the haunt of jackals, where, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Reeds and rushes, uh, if you've never heard of a, a, a bulrush, um, it's a little tiny green stick, and at the end it's got this little brown thing on it. Are you familiar with what that is? Uh, if you've ever, or if you've never seen one, just go out to Yellow Springs and go to any of the state parks there and buy uh, almost all of the springs or, or streams, there are these bulrushes. I'll tell you a terribly funny, uh, interesting diversion from this place. Now, and I think it actually does have spiritual meaning. The Holy Spirit here is transforming this place where dogs gather and, and evil dogs, leaderless, just, you know, uh, indicate, indicative of the demonic kingdom itself, these dogs are living in a place where they haunt, so to speak. And, and there's an idea there that that word is described of a place where, where evil spirits uh, actually 
inhabit or terrorize. And so these people, the people of God who are given the Holy Spirit, wherever they lie down, the, uh, the, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, a place for them to drink water, a place for them to live in the midst of this desert. So I was with my father at, um, I think it was John Glenn or, or one of the state parks out in Yellow Springs. And um, I had known what a bulrush was, you know, the green stick sticking out of the water with the, the uh, brown thing around the top. And I had, uh, I had known what one was, but I had never seen one. And so I wanted to go pick one out of the water. And it was just close enough to the edge of the water that I could go up and grab it. And it's really cold. I think it was, you know, like November or something like that. And I go by the edge of the water and I step near the banks of the water and I grab these bulrushes and I start picking one after another, after another. And then my dad looks at me and he says, John, run. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm, and then he's like, run. And then he points down at my legs and on my legs had, uh, I, I saw a terrible, frightening sight. Hundreds of yellow jackets were now crawling up my jeans and trying to get to me to sting me. Um, but it was in November, so they were pretty cold. But I had just stepped into their world. And uh, luckily, thanks be to God, it was cold. And so they were all really uh, sleepy. And none of them were really able to sting me that much. I think I got stung maybe six times. But most of them also were trying to sting through the jeans, and they couldn't get through them. And, you know, although I walked in a terrible place, God turned that place into a place of protection. What I mean to say is, when Isaiah prophesies that the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, it will become a place with rushes and reeds, what God is saying is, is exactly what Psalm 23 says. God is the shepherd of Israel, and wherever they walk, he will make them lie down in green pastures, although they're surrounded by their enemies. And and what I mean to say by that story and by connecting it with Psalm 23 is just because you have God's protection doesn't mean we wander into bad territory, and it doesn't mean that if we go through trials in life, we're not sometimes stung, but we're not killed at all. And so the waters which touch everything and transform dangerous, uh, dangerous places into pasture lands, these are nothing other than the repetition of the idea of Psalm 23, Luke 10, Luke 12. And so this builds and builds over and over again. God will transform the desert into a garden or a, a place of, of life. He will uh, tell the people of Israel to give words of consolation to their people. Not only that, Jesus himself will perform miraculous uh, signs and wonders, and the Holy Spirit will be given, and he will create streams in the desert. But building on all of that, as if that was not enough, now there is a way of holiness which is opened up. Isaiah 35, and a way, a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall not, it shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. This is great confidence for you and I. Jesus Christ himself is the way which was spoken of, and those who walk in his way are not unclean because they have been cleansed by his word. That is the gospel which comes and is proclaimed to you through the ministers of Christ. That gospel itself transforms and cleans, but not only that, it makes you possible to walk on the way. 
as if the miraculous power of God's salvation, the water in the desert, and the way of holiness were not enough, God begins to demonstrate his hedge of protection around his people. Isaiah 35, 9, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it, and they shall, they shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. The devil who goes about like a roaring lion cannot touch any of those who walk on the way, for God protects them. And God's highway is not only the avenue for a return from exile, but it, himself, it, in, it itself speaks of a permanent state of blessedness. And this is how we know it is okay to believe God's kingdom has come and yet is still being fulfilled and still coming. Isaiah here prophesies about a number of things, that the desert shall become a a garden, that those who are weak shall become strong, that those who are fearful shall become bold, that those who are blind will, will now be able to see, the deaf will now be able to hear, the lame will now be able to walk. Not only that, he also prescribed or uh, foretells a way of holiness, but in describing the way of holiness, we know that there is a future fulfillment. In Isaiah 35, 10, the end of the chapter, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Now, again, over and over again, what does 1 Peter say? You're being built up like stones, living stones, into a new tabernacle, a new temple. And so the people of God have become the singing redeemed community which inhabits Zion. But also from that, there's a future fulfillment. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You and I know from our experience that this has not totally taken place yet. But we know clearly from the scriptures that this is speaking not only of our current state in an, in an appetizer-like way, but that we will enter into the full fulfillment in the future at the return of the Lord. And to this end, the prophet Isaiah speaks not only of our present happy condition, but also the concerning the future joy that we shall have in the life to come. This is what we mean when we say we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. We know that God's ways and means, his dealings with his people on the earth are in progress and they are beginning to be fulfilled in a true way, but it is not done yet. Now we are beset on every side with various persecutions and failures, personal trials and temptations, illnesses, sicknesses, and yet we know in the future it will not be this case. We will have joy in Zion forever. This way of holiness has been opened up to us, and we must walk by it. And so as we celebrate Advent this year, um, we look forward to the the return from Christ, Uh, uh, return of Christ from heaven to establish for us this eternal joy. What I would like to impress upon you is that the entire scripture is filled with these type of symbols and, and patterns, and that not only is it important to understand Isaiah through these tools, through these means, but also all of the scripture itself. And so, Having learned from God's word, we now celebrate his future coming. As we take communion today, we're, we're going to have the lighting of the Advent candle and a reading of a psalm, and then we're all going to take communion together. But we celebrate this communion now, not simply remembering that Christ died for us, but also, like I said, in, in kind of a, an appetizer-like way, we participate in communion now with hope 
and certain expectation of the future meal to come in the, new, in the next age.